Welcome back to Campbell Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell, and today is episode 192 of the podcast, and I'm joined in conversation by Joe Woodhouse. Joe is an award-winning financial planner who helps families reduce their worries and become financially free. Well, you can certainly look forward to plenty of actionable info on financial planning and money during this episode, you're going to hear about a whole lot more, including the challenges of putting your career before your health, flipping the switch with long-term weight loss, IVF and building a family, losing a loved one to help you live intentionally, and even managing your mental health through the actions that you can control yourself. Joe has been creating brilliant short-form content on Instagram on his reels for a good few months since I've been following him, and I've been so impressed, and I was really excited to get onto a podcast and have a longer-form conversation and really get into the detail with him and I loved having the conversation and I think you will too. If you're new here please make sure you've hit the subscriber follow button if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify you can hit that rating button as well and pass this episode on to a friend that you think would enjoy the show too. Today's podcast is sponsored and supported by Cal Recovery and their Cal Recovery Cold Plunge Pod. If you're anything like me, you train hard, you're trying to pursue the best version of yourself, you're a busy person, proper recovery as well as mental clarity is absolutely vital. Cold water therapy has been proven time and time again, not only in studies, but by advocates worldwide to rapidly help fight inflammation in the body, reduce fatigue, reduce injuries, while also giving you a chance to clear your head of the multitude of thoughts and stresses that we all carry around. I've been loving both the physical and the mental benefits of a three to five minute cold plunge, five minutes at a push sometimes, a few times a week. In terms of the science, cold water exposure has been shown to increase your dopamine by up to 250%, which lasts for hours afterwards. And I certainly know that when I jump in that plunge first thing in the morning, it provides me with a chance to hit the reset button, cancels out the noise that's going on inside my head, all the different stresses that I've got. And all you can think about is just breathing and staying in the tub for as long as you possibly can. And it's also helped me feel fully recovered with my training. You can grab your CalPod at the link in the description and get 10% off by using the code CAMBRO. And that includes free delivery across the UK. So hit the link in the show notes and use CAMBRO if you want to get involved in the cold dip scene. I loved having this conversation with Joe. We went all over the place, even when you would maybe think that the title of this episode, Wealth Isn't Just a Number, indicates that we're going to talk about finances, but we certainly went much wider than that, and I'm sure you're going to all appreciate it. The music's going to play, and you're going to hear from myself and Mr. Joe Woodhouse. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. And it's a it's a funny period in your life just now, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the the work that you've been doing across the different areas that you're interested in are kind of coming to like a bit of a an accumulation. There's the there's the physique photo shoot coming. Your business is in growth mode, and you're 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 growing on social media, and you're creating content that seems to be very within your niche, but also quite natural coming to you as well. Um it weren't always so i've been i've been creating content now for five years and to start like anything do you know what i mean like i put me ten thousand hours in so to start with they were horrendous they were really bad um but i stuck with it because i saw something there and yeah i suppose over time i've i've be, i think i've become a bit more natural on camera more comfortable on camera and it's I love doing it as well. Like I, I love making the videos, I love speaking. Um so yeah, it's become one of the best parts of my job, to be fair. 
Yeah, and from the fitness side of things, I know you've not always been dialed into that. In fact, I saw your transformation photo the other day on Instagram when we were <laughs> when we were getting organized for this. And I find it interesting that everyone's got these trigger moments in different areas of the life. And I'm, I, we're probably going to speak about the different areas of your life that you've had these trigger moments that have kind of transformed the the Joe that we get to talk to today. But from a yeah. fitness perspective, the transformation you've had is, is is pretty stark. But when did things start to move in the right direction for you? Um, so I, li- I lived in Abu. So I'm now in the UK, but I lived in Abu Dhabi for ten years. So we moved to Abu Dhabi when I was 2010, and previously to that, I boxed. So as a kid growing up, I was an amateur boxer, and it's a weight cutting sport. So I was always on weight. We were getting weighed three times a week when I was 12 year old. Um, so it was never an issue. But then I moved to Abu Dhabi, and I didn't even drink till I was 21. Um, and then moved to Abu Dhabi when I was 22, and then started boozing at the weekends, and then. They call it the Abu Dhabi stone and I put on the Abu Dhabi stone. Then I put on two stone, then three stone, then four stone. And it just sort of, it just became this accumulation. Um, and then it, it got, it got bad. Like I'm putting respect, I'm five foot nine and at the worst, I was 120 kilo. And it's, it started being a problem when, my wife, when we were having, I've got twin boys. So my boys are nearly five, Henry and Jasper. And it, it, when they were coming up to them being born, I was like, I don't want to be a fat dad. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be able to chase my kids around. But then I'll do it when they're born. Then they were in hospital for two weeks in Nickel, which was horrendous. Um, they nearly died, to be fair. But when they were in there, it was, I'll do it when they get home. And then the sleepless night started. So oh, I'll. I'll do it when they start sleeping through the night. And then before I knew, I blinked and another year had gone. And it was August 2019. My mum got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And that, for me, was just like a rocket up the arse. And I just had the the viewpoint then that my mum had had her health and her choice. My mum, she was always super healthy. Right, she's had her choice taken away from her. I don't want to waste mine, and I want to see my kids grow up. And sorry, Joe. I think it's amazing when you're able to speak about these things, and you realise that that moment was pretty transformative, and it's put you in a position where you're going to be able to serve your kids in in for as long and as 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 well as you can. Yeah. So that was the that was the trigger point. And then call it fate, call it whatever you want. Literally an hour after that, I got a message on Facebook from a guy called James Goff, who was my first fitness coach. And it was something on, it was a cold Facebook pitch. Something on the lines of, I help busy professionals do X, Y, and Z, get in shape, lose body fat, get more energy. And I just messaged him back saying, I'm in. He's like, let's have a call and let's work out. I'm like, no, I'm in. Just send me the payment. Send me the link and I'll pay you. Um, he's like, well, don't you need to? I'm like, James, just send me the mate, send me the link now and I'll pay you. And then that, yeah, that when it all started. And then that was when healthy habits, routines, and that started then, started resistance training, started sort of watching what I eat, eating on a meal plan. And it since became, uh, I suppose, borderline habit, routine, or even obsession. Um, of course. So, so yeah, it's part of life now. It's interesting because 
when you moved to Abu Dhabi, that was before it was maybe as fashionable as now. Like so many of my friends, so many of my contacts that I know through the podcast and social media have moved to Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Qatar and places like that. But you were probably doing it before it was fashionable. What was the lifestyle like there? Was it still quite strict from that perspective? Because every every time I've been since 2016 onwards, it's been more Western each time I've gone in terms of the the stuff that we can get up to, whereas previously it was a bit more a bit more strict. Um, it it's a strange sort of place. It's like it's not a problem until it's a problem. So what I mean by that is it's not a problem until you do it in front of the wrong person. So in 2010, I brunches are a fairly new thing over here, aren't they? Like fr- Saturday brunches, bottomless brunch. We were doing them in 2010 in Abu Dhabi. Like literally every because over that back then the week the week uh, was Sunday to Thursday, so the weekend was Friday Saturday changed now more in line with the western world but so back then every friday we did a friday brunch which was literally all you can eat all you can drink 12 while four and most friday evenings most people most expats couldn't speak just because they had that much to drink every friday every single friday afternoon so it was like a well-documented thing that everyone did this but it was only if you stumbled out of the hotel and stumbled across a police officer then it was a problem um but they turned a blind eye to it. It's, it's it's just one of them things. Of course. But when you're in that culture where everyone that you're in a network with is is partying every every Friday, Saturday, obviously all the calories that come with that. Yeah. That was where the, the, the Abu Dhabi stone comes from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. Mm, because you've grown up so active as well with your boxing, I suppose that's that it, when that comes out and the input comes in from higher calories, it's it's going to be a, 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 a deadly combination. And <laughs> yeah. When you're building a career as well, and this we were saying before I hit record, like how I kind of built my initial following was very much talking about how I was traveling around the UK to different clients and still maintaining shape and actually improving in terms of shape. But it is so difficult because when the hours are long, you are more tired, you're more susceptible to taking the easy option. What was that like for you in those early days when you're kind of building your reputation in the finance world and you're so stretched? It, it got worse for me. So in 2014, 14, I bet I got, I started um, working in Saudi Arabia quite a bit. So I was flying out to Saudi most weeks. So my sort of from 2014 to us leaving Abu Dhabi in January 2020, my work week was fly to Saudi, so in the office Monday morning, um, fly to Saudi Tuesday morning, get back Monday or Tuesday, sorry, Monday, fly to Saudi on Monday, get back on a Thursday from Saudi Arabia. While I was in Saudi Arabia for those four days, I was living at hotels. And because I wanted to maximize my time there and meet as many clients as possible, it was always like 16, 18, 20 hour days. So I'd get up in the morning. I wouldn't have breakfast because I were too busy for that. I'd have 15 cafe lattes, full fat cafe lattes all day on my client meetings, which is like a meal in itself. I now know. It get to like three o'clock in the afternoon. I'd not eaten all day, absolutely ravenous, driving past a KFC, that'll do. So I'd go in the KFC. I'd order two meals because I was that hungry at that point. And then I'd be back on the road again, more meetings, get to the hotel at 10 o'clock at night, absolutely ravenous again. Then I'd just literally just complete the room service menu. Um, And I did that four nights. Then I'd come back on a Thursday afternoon and it was like somebody shook a bottle of fizzy pop up and just opened it. And I just went mad at the weekend. It's time to let loose. Yeah. Yeah. I'd been in Saudi where you can't drink still in Saudi Arabia. And 
I was on my own in a hotel room. I'd not seen my wife for four days. I'd not seen my mates for four days. So we'd be out brunching. We'd be out going for nice dinners. We'd be boozing every weekend. And it just it just got worse and worse. And but I didn't realise how bad it got until really just looking back. And I had this sort of naive view at the time of, I can do it if I want to do it. Like, I used to box. I can get fit if I want to get fit, but I'll do it later. Um, and like I said, the catalyst for me was when my mum got ill. Yeah, I'm a big fan of James Clear Atomic Habits and every action that you take is a, is a kind of reinforcement of a future identity or a future habit that you're building. And each time that you were telling yourself, oh yeah, I could, I could change this if I want to, but if your behaviours weren't aligning with that, you're just getting further and further away from the Joe that we see today, which has taken years of cumulative habits to build and to shape and to make a lot of the things that you do now, which people would be like, oh fuck, that's really hard work. To make that almost second nature to you, has taken a long time to build up. So the further away you get from that, the more often you go to the KFC drive through when you're hungry and you order two meals, when you raid the the, the, the mini bar or the or, or the room service, that is just a movement away. And don't get me wrong, some people can can do that once in a blue moon and, and they put it on the back burner. But if that becomes the, the regular go-to thing, then you do end up in a position where you are 120-odd kilos at, at, at five foot nine and, and your health markers are, are way off. And I, I appreciate like such an emotive subject to, to, to discuss your mum. But when you are faced with mortality like that, I've, I've, I've experienced that with a, a number of my guests have shared when you experience something like that, you have to react in a way that puts yourself first, but also supports those people around you. And I think it's amazing that you've decided to do that. Yeah. And again, what I've learned since then is I try and take the gift in every negative situation. So if it wasn't for my mum being diagnosed with cancer, I wouldn't have got my health in order. I wouldn't be in this position today if it wasn't for that. I'd probably still be massively overweight. I'd probably still be unfit. I'd probably, I were out of breath when I was climbing the stairs. Like it was bad. Um, so, so yeah, so I try and find the gift in every situation now. One of the things you were talking about was when you were, driving around on on, on on work business, you were just getting in the fast food or, or ordering from the mini bar or in the, the room service. That's obviously expensive. I, we're, we're definitely going to talk a lot about money during this podcast, but I believe there's quite a different relationship with when you find money or when it's not your money that you're spending. So say, for example, after this episode, you walk outside, there's a £10 line in the pavement. I think you behave differently with how you spend that £10 to, if you had earned that £10 in a, in a shift in a restaurant, for example, working for an hour. In the same way, when I've been away on work expenses, I'm much less likely to be frugal or safer with the choice of how I spend that money than when I'm spending my, my own money. And that's not to say that I'm like super tight with my own money or anything like that, but it's noticeable that like you'll be a little bit more lavish. And I've definitely noticed like, oh yeah, fuck it, we'll have dessert if we're if if, if it's on work expense I'm with a client, it doesn't matter. I definitely found that being like a a challenge to my programming and I've seen it across the board with all the different colleagues that I've worked with across the years. It's a it's a funny concept in that regard. We're not as careful with money that we don't feel is ours, I suppose. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good observation actually. But for me, I've always been self-employed, so it was my money. So whether I were traveling or at home going out of the weekends, it was still it was coming out of my pocket. Yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting one. I don't I don't I don't know quite what makes us be a little bit more reckless. I know people maybe win the lottery or win a big uh, gambling bet, they're less conscious of spending that money in a way that would serve their future self and they're more um leaning towards the the gratification and one of the biggest things that we can do in terms of gratification is cheap available 
hyper palatable food that, uh, that that doesn't necessarily serve us. You were you were talking about your your mum there, and I know that she actually played quite a big role when it came to you getting involved in the finance world for the first time. Can you uh, can you share why that was, Joe? Yeah, so I, I I grew up in a traditional sort of working house working class household in Sheffield, and I didn't know what I wanted to do as a kid. All I knew was my dad's a market trader, so my dad's a sec, my dad sells second hand brick and black on Sheffield Market. My mum's always so I had office jobs, and all I knew was that I didn't want to work on the markets with my dad, and I had it drilled into me. So I'm of that era where if you don't go to university, you're either, a, you're a bin man and I, or you're working on the markets with your dad. And I'm like, I don't want to do either of them. So I was going to college just because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Cause I'd had this drilled into me that without that, you're going to be a bum. So left school in the summer. Um, I had all intention of spending six weeks in bed and my mum were like, right, get out, get a job. Oh, I'm going to college in September. She says, yeah, but you can get a part-time job. So they used to keep me out of the house every morning when they went to work. I'd then go and hide around the corner. When they left, I'd then come back in and play my Xbox all day. And a couple of weeks in, my mum came. My, my younger brother used to play Sunday League football. My mum came back. She went, I've got you an interview at a bank. I said, doing what? I, said, I don't know. Like One of the mums, Julie Chan, she's called. I owe her a lot. Uh, she says, Julie's bank manager. And she says she'll get her a job. So... And this one, she Julie was the customer service manager for Lloyd's TSB in Sheffield, in the High Street branch in the city centre. So I went in, so I went down town on this Saturday, whenever it were, and I took a mate with me. So me and my mate went in this, went into the banking hall. He sat down. I went to the front. I had no intention of wanting or getting this job. And Julie came out, and um, she saw she took one look at me, I looked over my shoulder at my friend who was sat behind, went, "Come here." took me in an office and she says, listen to me now, drop the attitude. I know you switched on. I've promised your mother I'm going to give you a job. <laughs> if you lie to her, I'm going to ring her now and I'm going to tell her that I've given you the job. So if you lie to her, she'll know. Now get the fuck out of my office. And as I'm walking out of this banking hall, I just said to my mate, I think I've got a job in a bank. And he went, doing what? Oh, I still don't know. Um, so yeah, so that was that, and then I started working as a cashier on Saturdays part time. Yeah, I, I fell in love with it. Yeah, I was, I was, I, I, I was going to ask when you get a job in those circumstances. I guess Julie was kind of no nonsense, so you show a level of respect because the teachers at school can't really speak to you like that. Whereas in the real world, before you go into the college environment, she's kind of giving you a bit of a shake, and she's a working woman. She knows the way of the world, and you're like, right, okay, well, maybe I'm going to have to to yeah. to kind of shape up here. Yeah, I mean, the actual cashier inside, I hated. And I was probably the worst cashier on the planet because my till never balanced at the end of the day. But I just fell in love with like, the sales, the relationship. Because, again, it's a little bit different now in banks, but this was back in the day where you'd go to the bank and it'd be like, right, do you want to speak to a manager about upgrading your account? Do you want a credit card? Do you want a loan? Why don't we invest this money for you? Why don't we find you a better savings account? And we were targeted on referrals, on bums on seats to the account managers. And it just became a game. I was like a dog with a bone. Like nobody left my till until they either sat down in an office or they stormed out of the banking hall. Like there was no in between. To the point where people would wait in the queue um, to avoid me because they'd heard me pitch 
the previous five people before him. Um, yeah, and that was when I sort of fell in love, got into the sales and relationship building, and that was how I then fell into financial services. Yeah, it, it's amazing how people find their find their path, and if there's that little bit of like you say positive feedback loop where like I'm getting enjoyment from talking about these. Yeah. topics i'm getting enjoyment from talking to people i wonder what i can do in this in this space and at that age you never maybe think as as, as as clearly as that but your brain's just telling you let's do more of this or something that's similar to this as well and it's uh, yeah. it's amazing when you look back at what you had a passion for at a particular age that you maybe didn't realize you would have a passion for and how it plays out into the future when you're you're actually like i, I would say looking at you now online and speaking to you about it you're pursuing things that you truly care about, which is really, really great. But you would never have been able to map that out as a 17-year-old leaving school oh, and no, deciding uh, what you're going to do. Completely agree. And do you know what? Like yeah, At that age, I didn't care about money. I didn't care about finance. It would, it, I could have quite easily been selling cars. But it was that building that relationship and building that trust with people, that were what I just fell in love with. Um, so if Julia had worked at Carful Warehouse... I'd have probably sold phones for 10 years. It just so happened, fortunately, it was in financial services. And then so on the back of that, I then took my exams, became qualified, and that when I sort of developed developed a passion for really helping people with their finances. Um, yeah, and you were asking about my background before we started this call, and I look at what I was interested in as a, as a child, and I worked um, did like work experience as a sports journalist. And I used to go to, so I would play for the junior rugby team on a Sunday, but the men's team would play on a Saturday and they would travel all around Scotland. And I would write the match report. I would interview the players and the coaches. Okay. And I like, and by the time I went to university, uh, the kind of newspapers, I, I went to uni in 2010 to 2014. So newspapers were on the decline and they have been ever since. But I would say the modern journalist is a podcast host because he asks questions, he does his research, and he, he creates content off the back of it. So looking at what you're interested in as a as a child, quite or, or as a, a young adult, and like how those kind of move forward, doing the modern version of them in 2023, or whenever people are listening to this, is sometimes a, a, bit, a bit of a hack to decide what you might actually have an interest in. So you building those relationships and understanding what people are up to as like this raw as all hell teenager, it's really, really cool to see it come to fruition. Yeah, do you know what? I've never thought of it like that because when I was a teenager, all I cared about was boxing. Like, that was it. Like, nothing else mattered. Um, but part of that, so my the, the coach, the guy that ran the gym, Glyn Rhodes, who was like a second dad to me, like, he used to have us singing nursery rhymes in the gym. He used to have us shadowboxing in slow motion, singing I Can See a Rainbow. It used to make me speak to everyone in the gym. Like it, we, and I was always comfortable around older people. I was always comfortable about introducing myself to people. Um, they once took me to a Borstal. Um, we did this boxing exhibition at like a, a young offender's home. And it would basically, they were doing this talk about how to not give in to peer pressure. And then he just turned to me and went, Joe, I can see a rainbow. All right, what? And I had to chat a box in slow motion, thinking I can see a rainbow in front of 200, 200 kids that were locked up for being aggressive and violent. <laughs> but thing, and again, I've never thought, I've never actually put two and two together like that. Um, but I always enjoyed speaking to people. I always enjoyed speaking to strangers. I always enjoyed conversations with people. Um, 
So yeah, there we go. I just realised something. The the past leave clue, leaves clues definitely. I, 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 I certainly feel that way. But we were talking about your lifestyle in in Abu Dhabi. Having yeah. spent some time out in Dubai on different holidays, I definitely think that it's probably the epicenter of lifestyle creep. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the UK we see lifestyle creep, but I have I'm I'm always surprised by how some of the finance habits are out there even versus you know don't get me wrong i can be super critical of how things are in the uk and i've, I've got loads of stats that i want i want to talk to you about but what was it like when you're out there and you see how maybe people behave with their money is it is it, is it as bad as maybe i'm i'm assuming it is oh, it's probably worse than what you think it is um i call it the expat money trap because people go out there they earn more money they do back home they earn it tax-free um yeah, they seem to spend everything and frighteningly 60% of expats leave the UAE in a worse financial position than when they got there. Um, just because they don't put any money away for the entire time of there. And a lot of it is, is keeping up with the Joneses. It's, Instagram's made it even worse. Um, and I fell into it myself. Like I moved, like I said, moved out there at 22. I started earning more money than I could ever imagine. And I I fell down this very dangerous route. I'm a, I've always been a numbers man. I've always been a stats man. So I knew exactly how many calls I needed to make I, to, to book a meeting. I know how many meetings I needed to book to get one sit. I know how many meetings I needed to sit to get a client. I knew what my average client size was. So I got, I'm quite ashamed of it now, but I actually got to a stage where we're looking at expensive things as not monetary value anymore, but that's just a deal. That's just a client. Just need to work a bit harder next week and I'll just earn it back. And that's sort of a very sticky path to go down and again i tried to try and take the gift out of everything but what brought me down with the bang was my wife and i we got married and found out we couldn't have kids so we started going through ivf and it took five rounds of ivf before we were blessed with our twin boys henry and jasper and i very quickly ran out of money then when you're talking like fifteen thousand pounds Ago, because for each round, yeah, because no NHS, no financial support, nothing. You're on your own, um, and that's me with a big wake up call. And at the time, so I I changed jobs, that so I changed companies. The new company I didn't get paid for six months. It weren't what I expected. Plus, the market were down. Things were a bit rocky at the time. It was around Brexit, um, when the Brexit vote happened. So people were a bit worried about the markets. No one were invested and. I play. I had this victim mentality then of why me? Why can't we have kids? Why is the market shit? Why is this new company shit? And it was only when I really took stock and looked at this massive four-bedroom house we were in, what I was renting at 60,000 quid a year. We got a pool on the back, what we never used. We got two flash cars on the drive. We were going on all these expensive holidays. We were going out brunching every weekend. And it was only when I worked out what I'd earned and what I'd spent People are like, no, Joe, it's actually you that's been very frivolous with your money. And that, for me, was, I suppose, when I started practicing what I preach and really took stock of my own finances and then became a lot more intentional of where I was spending and saving and putting my money away. I find it really funny, the number of financial guests I've spoken to in the podcast, that in their younger days, even when they were maybe advising or supporting people with their finances, weren't practicing what they preach. And it's really important that we understand that as humans, we can be pretty fucking silly, even when we actually know what we should be doing. Like, don't get me wrong. So <laughs> over, over, overweight Joe 
probably knew he needed to not go to KFC and have two meals. <laughs> but was he doing it? No. Um, financially, not as not as stable Joe as you want to be. Probably knew that the house and the and the and, and the pool weren't as necessary as investing in getting a family. So it, it's uh, it, it's it, it's it, it's funny how when you can know these things but not do them, we understand that everyone is is fallible to some extent, and it takes different wake up calls, different conversations. And um, I was speaking with a gentleman called Perry Wilson recently, who um, has a YouTube channel called Stupid Is the Norm. Um, and it's all about financial education. Like and he's completely correct. Stupid is the norm when it comes to to finances. We behave really silly because particularly, like you say, if you move out to the, the Middle East, it's tax-free. You've, you've got more money than you've ever had before. Sometimes you think like, oh, I don't need to be as conscious when I tap this credit card or when I order this thing because it's going to be okay. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we all aspire to be in a position where we don't worry about necessarily everything that we spend, but we can be a bit more free. But when it becomes too free, the, the like we're just going to go into a mode where we do just chase the next exciting thing. So the next holiday from Abu Dhabi to the Maldives or whatever it is, and we, we don't think about it, but those quickly add up as you've shown. Yeah, and I think it's very easy to put things off and in, in search of that instant dopamine, that instant pleasure hit, which is exactly what it is. It's the same with anything in it. It's like for any sort of long, any to be successful at anything, whether it be, a relationship, whether it be health and fitness, whether it be finance, whether it be career, it's a little bit short-term pain. And the longer you can suffer that for, the more successful you're going to be. Um, and it's same with building a financial plan. Like If you invest for 30 years versus 20 years, you're going to have twice as much. Same with getting fit. If you train for four years versus six months, you're going to be a lot fitter, a lot healthier. You're going to look and feel a lot better and have a lot more energy. It's like it's like anything. Yeah, it's but so it's right. very, I think it's very difficult, and myself included, it's very difficult for people to see that. Of course it is. Of course it is, because sometimes you need like proof of proof of it working as well. So in the same way, yeah. when you started your your health and your fitness journey, you maybe started tracking your calories, you maybe started going for going for an extra walk or two a day. You're like, oh well, the dial's actually moving in the right direction. You almost need proof of concept. In the same way, I've I've heard you talk before about when you work with somebody that's maybe got debt you almost encourage them to try and get some not quick wins but some faster wins to build up some sort of momentum rather than just trying to tackle the the biggest scariest like i'm trying to eat the ugliest frog is a kind of kind of the phrase that you could use so i find it interesting that you recognize human psychology from that perspective when it comes to things like debt yeah like you you you're um you're your guest as well is podcast stupid is the norm Look, if we are, if you're looking at debt, if you've got four or five different debts, if we were robots, the best thing would be to pay the highest interest paying, highest interest debt off first. However, we're not robots, we're humans and we make a bad bit and we, we behave badly. So for me, it makes more sense to clear off the lowest outstanding debt. And like you say yourself, you then get a quick win because what you, what you did have, you did have five debts, you've now got four. Then you had four debts, you've now got three. So you can actually see it being, so like you, you can track it. Um, and it was same with me when I started my weight loss journey, fitness journey, whatever you want to call it. Like I got weighed every day. Well, I still get weighed every day. So get weighed every single day. So every single day I was seeing that number on the scales get less. That's a, again, I'm a numbers man. That's a direct win. Like that worked yesterday. So I'll just do it again today and do it again tomorrow. And yeah. We build momentum from that perspective. Um, the tagline is, uh, is very much family wealth 
Joe, and a lot of the listeners to this will be younger. Maybe they're either just starting to build a family or they haven't haven't started that yet. What are some of the considerations people need to have when it comes to the, the longer term? So the number one question I get of people is, Joe, what's the best investment I can make? And with a lot of people, I say, look, that's the wrong question that you're asking, or it's not the right question that you're asking. So when it, basically, I always look at it in a way, look, let's just make sure everything's boxed off one at a time. Okay, so the first thing that you need to do is um, make sure that you've got adequate protection in place. So if you do have a family, make sure, and you've got people that are dependent on you, financially dependent on you, make sure you've got life insurance. Because if you died yesterday, it's not you that dies, your income dies with you as well for the next 20, 30, 40 years. If you're not, if you've not got a family, if you're single, look, your health is still dependent your income is still dependent on your health. So the policy you can take out that if you got diagnosed with a serious illness or if you had a serious accident that meant you couldn't work for 12 months, it paid out a lump sum. You can then live off that lump sum until you get yourself back on your feet. Okay, so that's number one is make sure you've got proper protection in place. Just on, go- that, just on that, Joe, yep. that was something that shocked my audience when I hosted Pete Matthew from Meaningful Money when he spoke about that because, again, the audience are younger. They maybe don't necessarily immediately think of that. And I know I didn't think of that until I had a mortgage because you don't necessarily think of these things until you have overheads that would pass on to pass on to your, 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 your nearest of kin. And again, we started off this podcast talking about mortality. People often want to avoid that topic at all costs. So when you raise it, it can send a kind of sharp emotion to be like, oh no, not, not for me. Like, and uh, you were saying um, overweight Joe was, 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 was putting off losing the weight. I can do it one day. People definitely think that way when it comes to particular types of insurance as well. Well, the stats are one in two of us will get cancer at some point in our lives. So statistically, either me or you are going to get cancer. Fact. That's from Cancer Research UK. And the, the way I, the, the policy is called critical illness cover. And it's, essentially, it's exactly what it says on the tin. If you if a doctor taps you on the shoulder and says you are being diagnosed with eggs, it pays you out lumps up. And the way I look at this, it's actually the best odds lottery that you'll ever play. Because statistically, like I said, the chances are you something will happen during your lifetime. Excuse me. And if you get diagnosed with a serious illness, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to die or you're going to be incapacitated for a very long time. So if you're going through chemotherapy for six months, 12 months, 18, 24 months, what are you going to live off during that period? Because your rent still needs paying, your mortgage still needs paying. You still need to put food on the table. You still need, you've still got your car payments. So what this policy does, it basically pays you that out to give you freedom and flexibility to do what you want to do with it. Whether you clear your debts off, whether you just shove it in a bank account and live off it until you're back on your feet again. But it just buys you that time so you can then focus on recover it and not as well as overcoming this horrendous ailment that you've got, have to also have financial stress and financial issue, financial issues as well. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan that people are having these conversations early enough and on different different platforms where more ears can can consider it because like I say, it's, it's an uncomfortable thought. But your job as a financial advisor, financial planner is not to give people the kind of warm, fuzzy message all the time. Sometimes it's the it's the conversation with Julie when she took you in the office and told you to sort yourself out. It needs to be said. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and look, with any type of insurance, the, the earlier you take it out, the younger you are, the cheaper it's going to be as well. I was going to say the longer you delay, the higher risk you become or the more likely you are to be a, be a, a, a paying 
a payout for the insurer, so they're going to adjust their premium accordingly. But yeah. I interrupted you mid 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 flow, Joe. What was the what was the second consideration after after relevant insurances? Um, so second is clear debts. So again, before you even think about investing, make sure you're debt free. So any unsecured debts that you've got. So I'm not talking mortgage. I'm talking things like credit cards, loans, store cards, overdraft. Just get it paid off. And we sort of touched on this earlier. The best way to do that is by something what's called the snowball method. So if you've got five debts, can't see my hand. You've got five debts, and <laughs> you've got five debts, and let's say the minimum payment on every debt is twenty pound. Yet you can afford two hundred pounds a month towards your debt. Pay the minimum payment off on each, and put the additional one hundred pounds on the lowest outstanding debt, and do that every single month. Then, when lowest outstanding debt number one is cleared. You've then got four debts. You then put the minimum payment of £20 on each of those, plus the £100 additional you were paying, plus the £20 from debt number one that you were paying, and that all goes on to the second smallest outstanding debt. When that's cleared, move on to number three, number four, so on and so forth. And like I said before, that for me is the best way of doing it because you get those wins along the way of, I did have five debts, now I've got four, now I've got three. So you sort of choking it off. You feel like you're progressing, which is so important. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And three? Three is six months in emergency pot. So make sure you've got a separate bank account with six months expenses in there. So, and this sounds like a lot of money to most, to a lot of people, and it is, but it'll cost you even more if you don't have it. So if you're earning £4,000 a month and you're only saving... I say only. If you're earning £4,000 a month and you're saving £1,000 a month, that means you are spending £3,000 every single month. Therefore, you need £18,000 in a separate bank account. That's not for a new teller. That's not for a summer holiday. That's for emergencies. That's if the boiler breaks down, the car breaks down, the kitchen roof leaks, family emergencies, money that your salary generally won't take care of. And the reason I say this is super important is that if you do not have this and something happens, you then need to bounce off a credit card, which will then take you 10 steps back. Um, so that's really important. Completely on board with that. And just as an example from my personal life, um, I kind of learned about emergency funds back in April 2020. I interviewed Andrew Craig, who wrote How to Own the World. It's one of my favorite investing books. And he was talking about that. And again, listeners in the audience were like oh never heard of this concept before i've always been trying to like get my money into the market and invest but if i don't have something so in the last two years i've had a roof repair on the flat totaling 11 grand and a boiler that was like two and a half or something like that so these things do come up and if you don't have that available i also in 2019 had a redundancy and i didn't have an emergency fund at that point but i was i didn't have a mortgage at that point so it was a little bit less a little bit less severe so it's a it, it is it, you, it is a case of like, oh, it won't happen to me, but it definitely does happen semi-regularly. And as soon as that emergency fund was depleted for me, I scaled my investments to try and make sure that I was building the emergency fund back up as quick as possible. So rather than my, for argument's sake, £800 that I was putting away into HL and Vanguard, it went down to like 400 while I was trying to build up my emergency fund as fast as possible again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Because the difference between having it and not having it is the difference between a small financial road bump and it completely de- derailing your entire life. Exactly. It's a, it's, it is, it, again, it's just, it's just that kind of start, start warning, isn't it? But I, I was doing some, some research before this and over 40% of people in the UK do not have enough to put themselves if, for one month 
if they were to get a redundancy oh, yeah. or in the absence of their income. And off the back of that, let me see where this is wrong, money and pension services. So it seems legit. 9% of the people in the UK have no savings whatsoever. Like wild, like just like no savings whatsoever. That. But then a further 5 million have less than 100 pounds. So there are people that are living month to month or day to day. And if a, if, a, if a big thing comes up, like you say, they pull the credit card out and they use that to cover these these upcoming expenses, which of course leads to debt, because what are the chances they can pay that off if they're already heavily leveraged and they're not able to save money on a regular basis? I think we've been, as a society, quite drunk on easy credit for a very, very long period of time. And when these interest rates came up to try and control inflation, it's been a bit of a, bit of a rude awakening for a lot of people when it comes to their debts. It's become the norm, though. I, I bought a 20-quid T-shirt off a very well-known website the other week, and it asked me if I wanted to split over three payments. A twenty-pound T-shirt. Do you want to split it over three months? All right, no thanks. It's Delayed insane. gratification is not allowed nowadays, is it? Like, like you were saying, you grew up in a in a, in a very working-class household. I, I was definitely fortunate to be like comfortably middle-class, but my parents wouldn't have wouldn't have let me buy something if I didn't have the money available at the time. So, like, save up, put it in your piggy bank, and then we'll go to the shop and you can get it. Like, there there is a, there is an element of these lessons still ringing true even as an adult. Like, put your credit card away for now, and don't get me wrong, I use my credit card for expenses that I know I can pay back in the future because I've got a direct debit set up to pay them off, and I'll get some points from Amex and whatever else. But I'm playing a game that I know I can win because I've got my numbers and my figures in order but many people are just getting the credit card out and almost looking at it as like free money or a really cheap loan but it's not a cheap loan if you end up not paying off on time yeah exactly you like say if you are using I do exactly the same thing with mine like I put everything on my Amex card and then pay it all off um, but you need to be organised with it you need, to, you need to make sure that you clear every month otherwise you'll end up well out of pocket yeah exactly that you recently spoke to um, Ian Ramsey who's the AHR's chief investment officer you guys mm-hmm. were talking about the markets post Russia and Ukraine and kind of looking at how important that was because it seems to be that a lot of people just immediately say oh Russia and Ukraine that's why the why the market's down sometimes we need like a reason to explain why the market is the way it is what did you guys find and what were you discussing um I mean the main thing is ignore the news but I say to people on a regular basis because too many people make 30-year investment decisions based on the last 30 seconds worth of news so with any sort of portfolio, yes, you need to make sure you're well diversified. Yes, you need to make sure it's in line with your appetite to risk. But what ha- what worked six months ago, what worked a year ago, what worked two years ago, typically will work moving forward. And the best way to invest for most sort of DIY investors is just buy a fund that tracks the market. Uh, and, it, and I say this time and time again, it's about time in the markets, not timing the markets. And the only people that lose out are the ones that try and buy in and sell out and think they can time it right. I mean, if you look back to 2020, during the COVID pandemic, when the markets dropped by 40% overnight in March, if you'd you'd have been invested, and again, at that time, I made a point of getting on a call with every, every single one of my clients I didn't sleep for about three weeks. I just, I wanted to meet every single person and just look them in the eyes and just say, and every single person went, what are we going to do? I'm like, we're going to do nothing. I, what do you mean? I'm like, nothing. Because what worked a month ago, what worked six months ago, will continue working. And I'm like, we don't know how bad it's going to get. We don't know how long it's going to take. But what we do know is that the sun's going to keep shining. Grass is going to keep growing. And the world's going to keep spinning around. So, things will prevail. We will reach a bottom and it will come back. 
and at the time I, I compared it to the read a really interesting article about the Spanish influenza in 1918. So the Spanish influenza, which was the first pandemic, if you want to call it that, lasted 18 months. And it actually panned out pretty much like COVID did, where there were three waves. So there was the first wave, then there was the second, then it got better in the summer, then there was the second wave in the winter, and then a third wave, the spring of the year after. But the recession then only lasted nine months. And so the example I used then was, look, if you look, if we compare it to that, what happened hundred years well, over hundred years ago, the good and the bad, the baddies were a lot more well connected now than we were back then. So it will spread a lot quicker, which we saw because it no longer takes you three months to get from the US to Europe. It takes six hours. So which is why we saw it spread so quickly. But I'm like, look, we're hundred years older, hopefully hundred years wiser. We're a lot more financially secure than we were back then. We've not just come out of the Great War and we can talk to people all over the world. So if they're going to get a grip on this, they're going to get a grip on it sooner. Turns out I weren't quite right about that. Um, however, I said, look, if you look at the recession, then it was nine months. So it got things got better then, even though there was this second and third wave after that, the markets recovered well before that. And lo and behold, the markets came back at the end of July. And you don't hear this on the news, right? Because all the news p- portrays is stock market lost 40% in March 2020. But if you remain invested from January to December in 2020, you'd have made 20%. Exactly. There's a good news story in there, isn't there? And it's, yeah. it's it's about just remaining calm and remaining quite stoic with your emotions during a period of time where everyone else is losing their losing lo- losing their heads. And I do think the financial p- behaviors during that period were demonstrative of how calm people were during that period and how like how much can you zoom out? Perspective is a hell of a thing. Like, can you give yourself longer term longer term horizons? Like, I think in this age, like we're talking about instant gratification where you are seeing people make massive profits from whatever they were whatever they were flipping whether it was stock shares or, or, or crypto coins people were either making massive profits or massive losses and you're thinking well it's much it's much easier to just stay calm keep going over the over, over the longer term like well to be fair after um if we say Russia Ukraine was a trigger point, but certain things around it were were related to that, I think my Vanguard's like seven percent down, which is pretty 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 nasty to look at. But it, at at points during my time investing since twenty eighteen, it's been like twenty five percent up because the S and P five hundred was doing exceptionally well. So it's a case of look, the 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 concept does work. We're just in a bad period just now. Don't sell when it's low. In fact, keep averaging in, and yeah, you're going to lower you're going to lower your cost. Yeah. Yeah. So when the markets fall, if you're investing on a regular basis, it's amazing. Like a falling market is the greatest gift to a monthly investor because if the market falls by 20% this month, it just means next month you get 20% more for your money. So when the markets fall, I know it's easy said than done, but when the markets fall, think of it like the January sales of investing. It's amazing because the market over the medium to long term, the market's only ever going in one direction, which is up. In the short term, they bounce around, but over the medium to long term, they only ever increase. And so another stat I've got with that. If you look back to 1928 until now, there's been 36 uh, bear markets, i.e. falling markets, and 37 bull markets, okay, of a rising market. The average loss of a bear market has been 36%. The average gain of a bull market has been over 120%. So again, it just we've got 100 years worth of data which says just remain invested within the markets. And what we are going through, and again, you don't hear this on the news, but 
what we're going through now is a completely normal market cycle and the market needs it in order to reset. Um, but again, what follows any sort of recession, what follows any sort of fall in the market is a recovery, i.e. things are going to get better and they're going to get bigger and they're going to get stronger. It's so easy to be pessimistic, but if you genuinely believe that any fall in the market is different this time around, you are betting against the continued evolution of human progress, which is a really, really pessimistic view to take. And I spoke to um, uh, a financial YouTuber called Damien Talks Money, and we clipped up one of the one of the things where he was saying that Michael Burry has uh, predicted 30 of the last two crashes or whatever. And it's funny because, of course, these doom mongers, they're going to be right at some point in terms of like, oh, I've been shorting this, the, 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 the property market for this long and it's come to fruition, or I've been shorting this, this stock for this long and it's come to fruition. But you'd never only you kind of only hear when they're right rather than all the times that they throw enough shit at the wall and it doesn't stick. And you're like, oh well, like we we all need to be calm. But the reaction to that was quite varied. Like a lot of people who do generally like, oh, this is the end of days kind of period. This is the end of the end of the end of empire. Now don't get me wrong, there is some merit to saying that the US is losing its position as the kind of leading power. So things like the S and P five hundred isn't as bullish as you as you maybe were in the past. But you are still betting on five hundred really good companies some of those to pull through and to and to grow and to Five, 500 of the 500 of the world's largest companies as well exactly so it's look it's like anything i can the sun's shining here believe it or not um for once i can go outside put a video out saying it's gonna absolutely piss it down tonight if i do that every single day at some point i'm gonna be right and that's what a lot of these people do yeah, yeah, it's it's really easy to do that. Uh, and another common theme amongst my my successful financial guests has been an interest in property. And I think during a period where other asset classes became a bit more sexy, in particular crypto, and I know you've got your your strong opinions on that. I think some people <laughs> did take their eye away from away from property, myself included, to some extent. Like I've dabbled with with crypto to, to relative success, and I've got some long term time horizons on some of the asset classes. Albeit, appreciate your um, you're quite bearish on on a lot of that. But what's your approach when it comes to property, Joe? I'm a big fan of property. Um, I look the reason I so. I, for me, I'm, I'm a massive fan of investing in things that provide an income. Okay, so if so, you buy a property that pays you an income today in the rent. Property value, property market increases. That's your capital gain as well. Um, so, my view on property, I think it's a sound investment. Again, we've got a hundred, got over a hundred years worth of data which backs that up. If we're looking in the short term, if we're looking at where the markets are at, if we're looking at interest rates, if we're looking at, oh, we're going to recession and everything sort of surrounding that. I think there's certain areas which are going to get hit. Um, so a lot of like blue collar towns will be affected, um, your lower income places. However, if you look at areas such as Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, that you can't argue with the demand. So the demands up here and the supplies down here. And there's been a couple of sort of um, key drivers for that. One is, so when I'm investing in property, there's, there's three things that I look at. Okay. First is education. Okay. So is there universities nearby? And what percentage of those graduates stay in that city? So if you look at the likes of Birmingham, Manchester, where I invest quite heavily, it's over 40%. So for every 10,000 students who graduate, 4,000 stay in the city. And I'm yet to meet a graduate with 50 grand in the bank 
to buy a nice apartment in Manchester or Birmingham City Centre. So what that does every year, it pushes up the rental demand. Okay. Second is transport links. So it's looking at wherever it is you want to invest. How well connected is this place to the rest of the UK? Does it have its own metro? Is it on a train line? Is it near a motorway, network, highways? Uh, does it have an airport? So it's looking at the transport links. Then thirdly is looking at the movement of people. So are people moving to this area or are people moving away? And with this, there's been two key drivers. One is the mass population in London. So everyone knows London's the UK's largest city. There's 9.4 million people that live in London. Yep. Birmingham is the UK's second largest city. There's only 1.2 million people in Birmingham. Okay, So that massive disparity of population of people is inflating the prices in London, which they don't like. So they're trying to invest heavily in the infrastructure in what they call, in what the, the government called tier two cities. So you'd be on Manchester's, your Birmingham's, your Liverpool's, your Leeds. And they, the, there's a couple of ways of doing that. One is they want to retain the talent. So they want um, Jack Smith, top of his class, graduates from Birmingham. They don't want him to have to go to London to get the job he wants. They want him to be able to get that job in Birmingham. So they're putting all this infrastructure in. And the second sort of key driver is Brexit. So historically, you've had all these multinational companies, European head office, London. That's not in Europe anymore. So now these companies need an office in the likes of Berlin, Paris, Barcelona, Madrid, as well as the UK. So a lot of them now are not willing to pay London city prices anymore. When they can move to Birmingham, they can move to Manchester for 20, 30 pence on the pound per square foot of office space. And what you're seeing is a massive shift in the banking sector to Birmingham. Canary Wharf moving to Birmingham. You're seeing a big movement in the tech sector um, and uh, to Manchester. Um, Salford now, just outside Manchester, they could, I think it's been renamed Media City. Yeah, so you've got all these studios opening there. So again, you've got over 20,000 jobs moving. 20,000 jobs means 20,000 people plus potential partners. 20,000 plus people need somewhere to live. So every single year it's pushing up this rental demand and there is not enough supply. So no matter how doom and gloom you think the UK is, no matter what your attitude is towards interest rates and where the property market's going, you can't argue numbers. Like you, there is not enough properties in these cities for people to live. And there's more people moving to these cities than more properties being built. So I'm, I'm seeing that firsthand in the student market. We were saying before we hit record that I supply furniture in the student accommodation sector and there's a massive undersupply and some of the older supply, which is university owned, is becoming outdated. So the students don't want to stay in it. Um, there's a huge number of families from international students still coming to the UK and particularly Nigerian and Indian. They'll bring like their spouses and their children with them to study here. And that's taking up the HMO market, which best believe is pushing students into the more of the PBSA, which is kind of purpose built stuff. And there's a massive undersupply of that. And the big thing coming in the UK is build to rent. And it's these big, um, big, big developments that are kind of like PBSAs, but for, but for grownups rather than just for, just for students in the pipeline. <laughs> but the, the pipeline for that is absolutely massive, but there's still huge demand for good quality housing and good quality rental properties where people can stay and people can bemoan and we've we've got a, a little bit of a an anti uh, anti landlord government in, in in scotland at the moment when it's kind of squeezing that with all sorts of different legislation and and stealth taxes but 
ultimately the private sector is so important when it comes to finding people homes that they can stay in and benefit from. And I think your strategy and your three considerations are are really interesting. And I find that the education piece obviously linked to my, my day job is, is vital because the UK remains a brilliant place for people to come and study. So people like myself and 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 uh, and, and your children will, will, will want to study at UK universities, but best believe all these international students still want to come and study at University of Birmingham, University of Manchester, these red brick, huge institutions that are like good value when it comes to your degree versus potentially some of the some of the other degrees you can get out of there. Yeah, and I see it all the time. I mean, like I said, living in the Middle East for, for 10 years and I've still, most of my clients are still based in the Middle East as well. I've dealt with all sorts of different nationalities and if you ask anyone from any country where in an ideal world, where would you love your children to study? And it's always UK or US always. Yeah. So, and these people need somewhere to stay because they move out of first year halls straight away. There's not a space for them. They need to go and find a house. And if you've got a good property for them and some of the guys that I supply furniture for have brilliant portfolios that yield really, really strongly. If you've got a six bedroom house and you're renting it for 600 pound a month each, that's a, that's pretty good. You pay off your mortgage pretty damn fast. If you can get yeah. a house in Fowlfield in Manchester for 90 grand and you refurb it for 10, 12 grand, another 10, 12 grand on furniture, you've got a pretty solid investment for the next five or so years, unless the students give it a really tough time, which sometimes they do, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but Joe, one of the final questions for you is, given that you're pushing for so much and you wear so many different hats so you wear your business hat you wear your family man hat you're now wearing your kind of fitness hat to like a more extreme extent obviously for a photo shoot we know that things get dialed up to the to the extreme how are you finding the the energy to keep pushing in all these different domains and still show up as you want to in the domains that matter to you um i'm really big on routine i'm super organized um i so i People laugh at me when they see my calendar and my schedule. It's like a military operation. Um, I say it all the time. There's, I find there's a lot of freedom in structure and a lot of freedom in routine. So I get up at the same time every morning. I, I mean, I'm up at 3 a.m. every morning. Um, and that's not, I'm not part of the hustle and grind 4 or 5 a.m. club. I don't buy into that. I've always been a morning person. So like, even on weekends, I wake up at 3 a.m. Like, I've always been the same. But for me, I love the mornings because I just I get up in the morning um, and my routine every single day is I do something that helps my business, whether that be creating a social media post, whether it be send a message, whether it be send an email, whether it be reach out to someone. Um, I sweat every morning. So I go to the gym or on my rest days, I do a bit of cardio or I'll get out and go for a walk. And I also journal as well. Um which again, I feel a little bit like a 13 year old girl when I tell people this, but for me, journaling is, I found that I enjoy solving problems. And if I don't give my brain problems to solve, my brain finds problems. So what a journal does for me, I find it a bit like a compass for the brain. So it tells my brain where to look for, for the day. And then at the what end are of the day. Some of the prompts that you ask yourself. So it's question the journaling. So it's things like, What's going to be the best part of my day? Who can I positively impact today? Um, who, um, what, and again, my favorite one is what potential triggers or problems can I face today? And then the follow-up question to that is, how am I going to handle that? Now, look, nine times out of 10, that's my kids who are going to play up. <laughs> but the, the more times I practice that routine in my head before it actually happens, I am much less reactive to that situation. You've trained yourself to be ready. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm a, I'm a huge fan of journaling as well. And I know that we're both connected to, to Paul Moore. In fact, I heard, I heard your interview with Paul and Paul's been on this show as well. Okay. He is, he is, he's done a great job in normalizing journaling for masculine men. And by that, I mean, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's, there's lots of different things going on in terms of, I think there's a bit of a war against positive masculinity by painting it as toxic, but then there's the kind of blokes bloke that say, oh, that's, that's why the fuck would you be writing down what you're thinking about and how you're feeling? And then you're like, well, actually Joe is an epitome of a pretty masculine guy. He's got, he's got, he's got a family, he works out, he trains, he's got a good business. He's interested in money and growth and does, does cool things, but he's spending time checking in with himself so that he better serves both himself and those around him. Yeah, and that was me. And again, like I said, I talk about trying to find the gift in every negative situation. Like my mum passed away in March 2021 and I went to a very dark place and I spoke to a couple of therapists that summer, which (laughs) didn't work for me personally. I probably went into it with the wrong attitude. I went into it with a very negative attitude And I've always, I'm very logical. So I would go into these meetings with these therapists saying, tell me what to do. Like, I can't control my emotions. I'm crying all the time. I'm angry at the top all the time at my wife and my kids. They've done nothing wrong. I just, I want to burn the world down around me. What can I do? And they're like, no, it doesn't work like that with mental health. We need to do this and work out the root of this and this. And I'm like, no, just, just give me an A to B to C to D. Just give me clear instructions, whatever it takes, I will do it. And they didn't give me any sort of straight and direct answers. And I remember going into one of them one, one day and I called my, and I had a massive argument with Laura, my wife, completely my fault. I called her a vile name and I went into this call with this therapist. I said, I've called my wife X this morning. And you're like, but it's not your fault. Right. I said it and you were going, no, 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 but you need to think about the circumstances that led to you saying that. What led to that? I'm like, me being a cunt, basically. Like, yeah, but what led you to feeling that way? And I'm like, I just got angry and I just shouted and I called her this. And I just felt that they were just trying to excuse me. And I listened to Poor Mortal Save Your Life um, over a weekend and I cried for the entire book to an entire audiobook. And it was on the back of that that I reached out to Paul in August 21. Um, and I've worked with Paul very closely ever since. Um, and again, but if it wasn't for very long answer to this, to your question, it wasn't even a question, I just went on for a rant. But if it wasn't for my mum passing away, I would have never, because I now know that these issues, if you want to call them that, I've never handled my emotions well. I've never caught sort of control my emotions And it was only when my mum passed away that it made me then tackle that head on, reached out to Paul. And Paul was exactly what I needed at that point. And even now, where he's a man's man, he's from the north of England, he he, he calls it how it is, he calls you out on your bullshit, and he just gives you and do this, then this, an A to B to C to D guide, very straightforward, very logical way of tackling things. Um. So yeah. that's what we need. Yeah. And um, it, it's interesting. I've had a few different guests discuss this, that female and male depression should be treated slightly differently in terms of the hormones that we have going on and male depression. One of the big things, and I'm not saying not diagnosing you with depression, but in terms of when you're in that low point, one of the things that we need is solutions and actions, because when you have a conversation with somebody, you feel like 
I need to be told what the next step is to move this forward. Whereas a lot of females typically, and this is from a, a therapist that's been on the podcast rather than just me, bro sciencing, said that a lot of females like to talk about their problems and share, whereas the men can share, but then they're like, right, what next? I may have emptied my problems, but I need to know what the next step is to make me feel like I have an element of control. And that's what needs to come next. And that's why one of the big challenges around the mental health crisis in the UK is that we aren't actually providing that for men because we're treating everyone's depression or woe points in exactly the same way. And you've benefited from Paul's action-led approach because it's catered to you as a man. And I think the word depression is used too much as well, if I'm honest, because that was the first question that they both asked me, do you feel depressed? And I'm like, what is depressed? And like, it's different for everyone. I'm like, tell me what, give me a, give me a tick list of what I should feel if I am depressed or not. And I'll tell you whether I'm depressed. Oh, wait, don't worry like that. It's different for everyone. I'm like, I don't know if I'm depressed. Then. And, and again, and, and it's just, I find it's, it's, late, it's very easy to put a label on people. And that one thing that I learned from Paul is like, no, you're not depressed. You're just feeling this certain way because of this, what has happened to you. Uh, or happened for you even and yeah I, I just like I just love his direct approach and it, it really worked for me it really resonated with me yeah well I certainly think it's it, it, it's worked well and I'm I'm delighted to see all the stuff that you're doing Joe I think you're, you're yeah, putting out you. phenomenal phenomenal content for for people that's extremely actionable in a topic that is a little bit um isolating because finance can be confusing you're setting a great example for yourself your family with what you're doing with your fitness and, and, and i'm absolutely loving seeing it but for people that want to continue the conversation with you where should they head towards easiest place is my instagram so it's joe j-o-e underscore family wealth 101 perfect joe that'll be linked in the show notes and thank you very much to you the listener i'll be back to speak to you all again very very soon